Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome back to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is April Book Club Day. That's right. We're talking about Trust Exercise by Susan Joy. And to help us break down this award-winning novel, we've brought back Brandon Taylor, the author of Real Life. And if you missed it, make sure you hear Brandon's first episode from April 1st, where he talks all about his personal love of books and his amazing novel. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. Before we get into the episode, I've got two little things to tell you. One, our book club pick for May is The Giver by Lois Lowry. It's a middle grade novel about a utopian society, and it was written back in 1993. We're going to be discussing the book, the story, and if this one still stands the test of time. You can hear it all on our episode on May 27th. Also, please know that today's discussion of trust exercise contains many spoilers. Okay, let's do it. All right, you guys, I am back this week with author Brandon Taylor. Brandon, welcome back. Thank you. Okay, we are talking about National Book Award winner from 2019, Trust Exercise by Susan Choi. We are going to be spoiling this book and... As is rarely the case, there actually are spoilers in this book. So if you haven't read it yet, take a moment, pause this, read your little book, come on back. Or if you don't care, just know that you're telling me right now that you don't care. And so when we spoil it, don't send me a mean message being like, I can't believe you gave away the ending. (laughs) Okay, Brandon, let's do it. We always start here. What did you think of Trust Exercise? I thought it was such a romp it was so twisty it was so juicy it was it was like fame meets american horror story it was <laughs> it was everything it was everything to me i loved it okay i was very apprehensive about this book because i had heard some people be like you're going to hate it and i was like okay well i hate everything loved it um i was a theater major no one told me this book was about theater kids doing Meisner technique repetition, but here I am reading these repetition scenes being like, I know this life. I know this life and I'm about this life. I loved the first section. I liked the second section and the third section left me going, am I an idiot? I have to talk about this on a podcast. I have no fucking idea what I just read. But the first section, I mean, I really liked the whole thing, but the first section I was like, 
the element of surprise. We're talking about theater kid things. Like here I am. I'm here for guys and dolls. <laughs> I am here for them playing at the piano. Like this is my life. Hello. Yeah. I The first section just like sucks you right on it. You're just like, oh yes, I am young again. Yes. Oh, these problems are not real problems, but they are everything. And she gets like at the earnestness and the like self-importance and the sincerity and like the drama of being... 15. Oh, yeah. All the sort of dumb indignities of like having a 15 year old body. Oh, my God. And not having wisdom, right. but being so perceptive. Right. And like being so just self absorbed in like the, oh, God, it was so juicy. Yeah. I wanted to shake all of them and to tell them, like, it will, this is not the world. Like, right. But also, I just, felt so deeply for them. Like right. I was, it, I had so much secondhand cringe. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Oh. Um, but those, those repetition scenes, I like felt things. That is real. <laughs> that is a real thing. Meisner. So do you know about Meisner? Not before this book I okay. did. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, welcome to the rest of everyone else. No one has any fucking clue but me and the six people I went to college with. But so there's a guy named Stanislavski. He yeah. was like the father of modern drama and he had disciples. And like the three most famous ones are Meisner, Adler, and Strasberg. And each one is like a different style of method acting, but it's all part of like method acting. So I'm sure you've heard that term, like people like throw it around like, oh, he's a method actor, like Al Pacino, who was Strasberg. But Meisner technique was all about repetition and the exercises were literally sitting there and talking to each other and saying and repeating the lines over and over until your teacher decides you're done or like you feel like you've run your course. And like reading it in a book is weird and also great, but seeing it in real life is also very weird and great. So it was kind of fun to see that technique in a book. Yeah. I mean, it's just so... I mean, also that technique is kind of like a handy metaphor just for like the process of like writing because mm. it is like passing the, these like little materials back and forth and back and mm. forth and back and forth and it changing subtly each time until like something new emerges from it. And when do you choose to sever that repetition? And right. like, it's just like such a beautiful and rich like metaphor just for the process, like any kind of creative or intellectual exercise. Right. But seeing it on the page was like, because, you know, you're, you're kind of like, okay, I get it. Like, I get it. I get it. But, but because she's like written it all out, you don't get to escape it until right. she chooses to let you go. Right. So there's this whole like meta thing where you're kind of locked in with the characters and, yeah. and it goes on for what feels like forever. Yeah. And it's like really just six. <laughs> yeah. But you sort of get locked in and you feel so deeply for it the characters and you can feel them just being like what is this I hate right. this I want to be out but I also want to give you what you need so that you'll let me be done with this and right. also we've had this horrible thing happen to uh, between us outside right. of class and now I'm locked in it with you um, right. it's just oh it's so amazing right and then the teacher mm. um, Kingsley Jim right mm. Jim Kingsley he like I mean let me go back. I don't even know how I've, I've been thinking a lot about how we would explain the book on the show, like how you explain what it is. And it's basically a girl, a teenage girl 
kind of from her point of view, we follow her at her performing arts high school and, and she's in love with a guy, David, mm. her name's Sarah. And then they like have a weird like encounter and drama class in the dark. And then they start dating and having sexy time and then they break up. And then these people come from England and it's like all her kind of reflections on this time in her life. That's the first part of the book. And so that's when like a lot of the the stuff happens, but they have this drama teacher, Mr. Kingsley, who's like weirdly obsessed with them, but also like weirdly mean and removed from them, which feels very much like my drama teacher in high school. I think that's like just like how drama teachers are. I think there might be something to that. Right? <laughs> like, like the, is that just like who they are? I think so. I mean, and I guess like with that character, you know, he's kind of like an outsider in this. I right. mean, also it's in Texas. Like, right. Like he's right. like this outsider. But she doesn't say Texas, right? No, she right. says like sprawling southern city. Mm-hmm. So it's Houston. Yeah. Okay. I'm I assume it sounded a lot like Houston. Okay. Sorry, you were saying something about him. Yeah, I mean, he's like he's like this this sort of middle-aged or late middle-aged like queer man in Texas uh, teaching high schoolers drama. Um, And he clearly is just like really, he considers himself like a capital D drama, capital T theater kind of. R-E, not E-R. Right. So important. He takes it, it's his life's work. And I think that there is something to, I think there's something to that. Like when you're a drama teacher in sort of these like, places when your life is not gone the way that you had hoped it would right and so you were teaching drama when you're teaching drama anywhere but like on broadway yeah or to (laughs) yale right right if you're not at juilliard yale nyu brown sometimes i don't know about brown (laughs) i went to nyu for theater so i don't really feel like brown counts but like there are some other schools i guess like Carnegie Mellon, mm. I would include in the list. But still, if you're teaching high school, pretty much anywhere. But yeah, yeah there's like some like like a weird, like I'm going to inflict something on these students, yeah, on these kids. He's going to make them. Yeah, yeah. So that's part one. And then Ms. Joy decides she's just going to fuck us up by being like, hi, I'm Karen. Or what they want you to think is Karen not really my name but I'll go by Karen and you realize that the whole first section was a book an excerpt from Sarah's book but that Karen is one of the people in the book but it's all real life and she starts telling you about her life and her experience and her relationship with Sarah and who's real and who's not and then you go on this whole other journey through the same time period and then beyond with this other person and it's a trip because you're like, wait, wh- who am I with here? And, you you know, you sort of thought you understood the story. But what you find out is like, oh, oh, no, I did not understand the right. story. And there were all these like subtle constructions that make so much sense once you get to the end of part two. And you're like, oh, I see how all of part one was like carefully constructed to deflect questions about. Well, keep going. What's that? Keep keep going. Yeah. Explain more about what you're saying because yeah. I think that I missed some of it. <laughs> well, I, I think that like in part two, because it's sort of going re going through it all, like from the perspective of like this person who's like, I'm going to tell you the real story, right? And because I know it's a story, I'm not going to lie to you, right? Uh, but in part one, like it doesn't, like it just flows so smoothly that you don't stop to question it. But there are all these like subtle 
things about it. Like you don't really get to go deep into Sarah's right. life, right? right? right like right. you don't get deep, deep, deep in there in the way that you would expect in a sort of proper, right. like if it were just like a real sort of novel. If you, the whole novel was part one. Totally. Yeah. Like you don't get deep in there. And so it's like this very carefully constructed mm. set of surfaces. So when it's revealed in part two, that the first part was like a very carefully written right. book about that time period from Sarah's perspective right. and Karen's pissed and she's come to collect her due. Right. Um, you're like, oh, oh, I get it. Like this story is not the stable narrative I thought it was. Right. And, and, you know, you find out from Karen all of the kind of dark seedy stuff that was going right. on. Right. But okay, when you were reading it, during part one about Sarah, did you like Sarah? Did you feel like you were connected to Sarah? I don't know if I like, I mean, there are moments where I, just, I wanted to shake her and it's like, what are you doing? These choices you are making. Right. Um, but I did feel, I don't know if I felt connected to her, but I felt invested in her. Okay. I was like invested in her as like a point of view character. And then when you got to part two or part through part two, did you feel like you were rooting for Karen or that you liked Karen? You know, I feel like that initial revelation at the opening of part two is so destabilizing that you kind of are like, wait, who's right? Right. Who's right? But I do think that Karen is not like super likable, but I also think Karen knows that. I feel like Karen right. is aware that she is not the right. most likable heroine. Right. And, and I think that what she says about Sarah in that part is right. That like Sarah is the kind of person who gets to go through life and she's always going to be the protagonist, even in someone else's mm, story. Right. And there's a way in which Karen really likes, there's a way in which like Karen like admires that about her, but also is just like deeply bitter. And she's right. like, you're so, you don't even see, you don't even know what you don't know. Like you're right. so silly. You're right, such right, a silly right. little girl. Um, and, and there's something about that kind of brassy edge to Karen that you kind of like really like. Right. Um, even though she's kind of, you know, a kind of wallflower and she's struggling to right. sort of she's stand so out. Blah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. Karen, you're helping David with the books. My God, Karen, you're a cliche of yourself. No, she's so, oh my God. Um, but, but I, see, I had a hard time because I think that I was like kind of invested and Sarah. And I think that I thought part two was going to be David. And so I was like rooting for more mm -hmm. of that story. So then it was like, Karen, I'm like, Karen, mm. like, why do I have to do Karen right now? Like I'm, and I also never, because then I couldn't trust Sarah, I could never really trust Karen. So mm -hmm. I felt like I spent the whole second section trying to like figure out what's going to happen next. Whereas I feel like in the first section, I was able just to kind of like believe. Right? Yeah. Like I just, I didn't know anything about the book. No one had told me a single thing. I didn't even really put together that trust exercise was actually literal, like an exercise, like trust game, you know? So by the time we got to Karen, I couldn't believe anything Karen said. Like I couldn't believe anything that I was reading. Yeah. I, I do think that there's something, I think a lot of that is intentional. Like I right. think Susan Choi is like a master. Right. And I think that that is like an intentional choice where she's going to like so destabilize you that you don't know what to expect. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a version of this book where it could have been that she just kind of does what she did in part one, but with Karen. Mm -hmm. But instead you get this like very surly, angry, prickly woman right. telling you about all the ways that Sarah has like simplified her life and mm. has just like 
gotten it wrong and has gotten away with it because, you know, she's like pretty and, and right. smart and like the golden one, you right. know? Um, and so she, I think there's something so rich about that discomfort because like I felt it too. Like when I was reading part two, I was like, I like, Oh, she's so mad. Yeah. Also like, I don't know if I want to relive this again. Right. You know, it like, gets never comfortable. And then you see her making like, you see her decisions lead her to a place of like more and more danger. Right. And it just is so uncomfortable. Did you know where she was going? I, like, did you know it was going to end in a gunshot to the crotch? I mean, uh, I think that's where it ended. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That's what I, yeah. no, yeah. Okay. I don't know if I thought it would end there, but I had my suspicions. Like I knew that it was not going to end well for right. several people. Well, I knew something was going to happen with a gun because mm. she had said the thing about the Chekhov's yeah. gun. And I was like, well, if we're putting a gun here, I'm sure we're going to get a gun thing at the end. But I just, I, I, I couldn't figure out. I, you're right. I was so disoriented by the shift from part one to part two that I could not figure out where I was for all of part two. And the, also the thing that's really impressive about what Susan Choi does is that she, the, the style of the voice, like the voice of the characters, it feels like it really was written by totally different people. And I mean, I don't write, but that's got to be really hard. Yeah, the two, like those two parts exist in such different registers Mm -hmm. and they're so different and it's not just like a word choice here or a word choice there like you really do feel like the sensibility that is powering both of those sections is so drastically different because these two people have had such different lives and it's like starting a new book you know when you finish a book and you start the next one you're like i can't get into this right now because the other voices in my head, that's kind of what it felt like at the start of part two. I was like, I don't know what voice this is. And it's, you know, and it's so jarring and it's so like, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like this, like this mysterious voice calls out of the dark and it's like, I'm Karen. And you're like, who are you? I don't, I'm not. I didn't even really remember who Karen was exactly during part one. I'm like, wait, which one was Karen? I kid you not. When I was, when I first read this book, I was like, wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, who, what, what? And I flipped back through and I was like, what, what is going on? Yeah. Like she's not even in this book. I flipped between the two parts, like for a solid 10 minutes, just like trying to like figure out like what was going on because part one is such a smooth reading experience. Just like you don't even know all the ways that she's ensnaring you until we get to part two and you're like, wait, oh no, I've been led into an illusion, you know? Um, and in part two, all those illusions are like, dropped and and there's the old there's that really like to me the most prickly painful part to like maybe the first half of part two is when she talks about her brother right like Mm. when karen talks about her brother and how sarah's like how he wasn't important to her and but he is to karen right and it's just like so like you know it just makes you realize like oh yeah sarah was kind of self-absorbed like like oh she just totally took this part of their their shared lives and turned it into a book and just there were people there that she literally erased right and yeah i I just found that so like it just like stabbed me right in the heart i'm like oh my god because like what which writer has not sort of lifted something i was just gonna ask you i mean your book is not you but there are connections to your life do you feel like it's not possible to write a book and not to erase people and things. I think that, you know, I think that there's always, 
I think that when you draw on real life experiences, it's your job to fictionalize them. Well, right. Yeah. And so that's your, what Sarah does. Yeah. But then you wonder, like, did she, did she really fictional? There's something about, right. like, there's something about, um, Karen's anger in part two mm. that make, that made me feel as a reader, like, oh, like she, she changed some things, but it really felt like Karen felt that there had been a misappropriation of her life's materials. Right. And I think there's a part of, I think there's a part like early on in part two where she says something like, where she's not like really mad about it, but she's like, she, mm-hmm. she sees all the, the, mm-hmm. the bad writing essentially. Right. Um, and she's not like furious, but she's like, you could have done a better job. Well, right. Because she says Karen is not. She's Karen. She recognizes that she's Karen, but she's like that thing between her and Joelle really was between her and Karen. Mm. Like that she took parts of real life Sarah and real life Karen's relationship and attributed like some of the juiciest, best, most exciting parts to other people in the book or other people in her story, which I think is probably like also really infuriating where it's like, you're not even interesting enough to be your own character. We have to move it around and like make it better. Especially because there's like an underlying assumption that that relationship did not end well. (laughs) Right. Like that it it did not end. It feels like it did not. (laughs) Right. And so there is on top of, you know, this kind of misappropriation of our life's materials, but it being done by a person who like, betrayed her and like on a friend level right Right. like it's just oh it's so complicated but do we think that sarah do we think that sarah and karen's falling out or whatever was that for sarah or do we think that sarah just was like now that i've been to london and had sex with liam in london and everywhere and whatever i'm like too worldly for all of these little high school kids and that it was like a general ugh with Kappa as opposed to something specifically Karen? Or do we think that there was something that we didn't get that was like they, like there was a moment of actual Mm. severance? I think that the book kind of suggests that neither one of these people has the real read on the situation. I Mm. mean, like we don't really get that from Sarah's point of view. Like we get, we get Sarah's book. We don't even really get Karen from Sarah's point of view. Totally. And so you know, and so, like, there's a way that maybe, like, Sarah would have, like, a different accounting of that. But mm. I think that the book's project is that between two people, there is – there's no way to know what goes on between two people. Perhaps even those people don't know what's right. going on between them. Right. And that it's possible that, like – it's possible that you can have a relationship with someone, like, a real sort of deep friendship or whatever, and it go wrong for a million different reasons. Mm. But the reason you attribute it to is like hyper precise and very, very sharp because it's very obvious to you. But the actual reality of it is that it's like something, it's everything and it's nothing, you know? Um, And like who hasn't had a friendship just kind of dissolve on them. And you try to like figure out what happened like 10 years later. And they're just like, well, it's because you did this thing. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. Right. No, I didn't. That's, it was this other thing I thought. And you realize like, the emotional truth of some, the emotional truth of like an impact of something like to a person is like a deeply personal, often like invented fiction mm-hmm. <laughs> for that person. Um, right. And that it sometimes, yeah, two people don't know what goes on between them, even when they're in it. You know? right. right. Even if it's like a positive thing. Totally. Yeah. Even if it's not like a breakup of a friendship or a relationship mm-hmm. or something. I am so glad you're here to talk about this book because you're making me appreciate things that I had not understood, which happens to me a lot. Um, is Sarah black? 
I don't think so. He, right? Liam says she looks like Sade. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's race in this book is real mysterious. Very mysterious, but I did not picture her black. And then he says that towards the end of section one. And I was like, turn up. I was like, hello, this part will be played by Zendaya. Thank you very much. I mean, should be. She's, she, yes. She would be perfect. I mean, I think that's it's basically one- euphoria. It's like a 1982 euphoria. I mean, it, oh my God. Mind blown. Would why? I mean, the thing is, like, I absolutely want the series of this book that is just part one. Well, okay. So I have this written down. Does this make a good TV show or movie? And if it does, do you have the cast from Sarah's version be the same cast in Karen's version? Or is it slightly different actors in Sarah and Karen's version? Mm. You know, there's a part of me... That's like, oh, just make the show part one. But then I was like, that's just fame. Yeah, that's just a great television show about kids in high school. Right. And like, we should have that for yes, sure. We need to re- just redo, or don't redo fame, but like rewrite fame. Oh my God, can you imagine? And like, an, like fame in Houston with like brown people. Wait, wig. Oh my God. Um, But I think like a more ambitious project would be this kind of like Rashomon sliding doors, like past, present, and forming each other. And it makes me, there was like a show, I forget which network it was on, but there was a show where it was like, there was like a present day story. And then the episode would also contain like a flashbacky portion. Mm. And I cannot remember the name of the show or the network it was on, but it was like one of these shows about like people in their, like a friend group in their twenties who are still influenced by things that happened in the past. Not, not how I met your mother. No, but that's, Oh, very similar. Yeah. Um, and so like, I would love that show where it's kind of like, they're slightly different. Um, they're, they're, Oh, you know what? It's kind of like the affair. Have you seen the affair? I have not, but I've, everyone always talks about it. So like the thing about the affair is it tells the same story, uh, uh, like across the season, but it like flashes back from different characters perspectives. And so you'll see the same scene, but characters will be wearing a different shirt or they'll be wearing, or they'll be mm. on opposite sides of the table. And so initially it's like really, really subtle. You don't notice it at first, oh. but over the course of like a season, you start to see like the way that like their memories are right. divergent. And so like I could, I would love a show like that, but, the, but trust exercise right. where it's like all these like subtle clues that they aren't quite on the same page. Like that right. would be so rich. Yeah. I, I would, I would die. Yeah. I think it would make for a really good program. Plus, programming. plus like kids in high school having feelings and having sex. Oh my God. And like being weird and like. Theatery. I feel like if this were like the early two thousand, like mid two thousands, the show would get made in a heartbeat because like that was su- there was such an era of just like shows right. about like youngish people right. doing bad stuff. But I feel like I mean maybe we're at the dawn of a new era because I feel like Euphoria was so successful and so. Did you watch? I yes, I so. love. But I also feel like it's such a departure from That's like. True. I feel like it's prestige television sort of finding plot again yeah <laughs> like like it's finding i love plot Thank love you. it it's like so campy yeah oh my god yeah the last like choir scene on the street i don't even know i was like i don't know what happened which is sort of how the end of this book was for <laughs> oh me. my god taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should be at least simple that's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. 
That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, let's talk about part three. Okay. Okay, so we told you guys about part one and part two. Part three is very short. It's 20 pages. Enter Claire. Claire? Oh, well, we didn't say this. I should go back. At the end of Karen's section, we find out that Karen has gone away for a little bit to a Jesus camp. Turns out it's actually she got pregnant by Martin, the out-of-town British theater director with an ego that is enormous huge and a very active sex life with underage children he impregnates karen i'm assuming here in america because when her and sarah go to england to see liam and martin martin is on tour allegedly she comes back she's pregnant she goes away for a while then she comes back to school. That's when her and Sarah aren't talking anymore. Now, part three is when we are introduced to all new characters. None of them are the same names that we know them by. We don't even know if these characters are necessarily fully connected to the characters, but we're led to believe that they probably are because a lot of the things are similar. But instead of there being a Mr. Kingsley, there's a Robert Lord um, and... There's so Claire's trying to figure out who her birth mother is. 
and her birth mother had gone to the prestigious art school and she had gone away for a while and they don't know anything about the dad. So we're kind of led to believe that maybe that it's Karen, but we're also, it's not really clear exactly what's going on because the details don't line up. They line up even less than in parts one and two. What do we make of part three? Yeah, I mean, part three was like, part three was tough for me because I had just, you know, part one, I was like, ooh, part two, I was like, what's going on? But I'm into it. Part three was like, oh, we have had yet another twist. Yeah. And in some ways it to me felt like both a perhaps too explicit nod to like the instability that's raised in part two and at the same time maybe too cagey about its details um there's a way that it just like adds this really chaotic element of instability to the book that that seems like it's just trying to just like break the book in half like Mm -hmm. and throw all the pages Mm -hmm. in the air like it's Mm -hmm. so like it's so chaotic like reckless and it's chaotic but it's if you look at the actual writing, it's like this really pristine, like straightforward scene of this yes. girl going to the school to find out who her birth mom is. Right. And there are all these like hints that come up that sort of pointing to, pointing to Karen. And so like, to me, part three was, I was just like, what is this? What is reality? Right. And I, and I still don't know what I fully think of it, except that it seems to be trying to close this loop. Um, so you had like part one, which was like exposed to be like a written text, um, of a period of time in the lives of these characters. And then you had part two, which purported to be like, you know, like it was sort of saying that I am going to give you the actual account of how Mm -hmm, the shit mm -hmm. went down. And like, there's a space between those two things. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like part three was trying to add yet another element and to sort of expose part two as, one person's version of those events and even she had still more secrets. And so I think it's suggesting that, that, that there are infinite like nested dolls of secrets further and further down. Like it's this weird fractal of secrecy. Right. Right. And so to me, like I, I see the kind of big picture, like, thing it's doing and so I can appreciate that but just like as a reader it was really chaotic <laughs> it was confusing to me I um came up with a hypothesis mm. I don't know if anyone is doing this that I'm doing but I, I went there I have decided based on nothing but my own thoughts which are the truth um, that Karen was manual and that Martin was just a figure mm. and that it doesn't really quite hold up. But remember Sarah exposes Manuel for having a relationship with Kingsley and then he goes away. And that's why Karen doesn't really line up because Karen really was in Manuel. Cause when Karen tries to figure out who Manuel is, she can't figure out. She's like, Oh, it could be all of these different people, but really it was a cover for her and that Karen had had a relationship because in the end, Lord is heterosexual. He's not gay. Mm. He had a wife. Mm. So then I was like, maybe he's Claire's daddy. I love that. I just made it up and it doesn't really hold water during the part, during the play, because then why is Martin there at the play? But I don't know. I like that. I mean, I think I really, really like that. And and this sort of goes to something that 
that I think we were talking about before, which is that like really, really good art has all these like different readings mm-hmm. like nested in it. And right. I think that's like an available reading of the text. I It's available. It's a stretch. There, I have to figure out how Martin fits mm. because I basically erased an entire person to make my logic. Well, so does Sarah. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Because I think I know what it is. I think that part of the book that was, it's hard for me. And I think it's hard for people. Like when we deal with what is the truth is that, Oftentimes your first account is like something that you trust, mm-hmm. right? Like why would I jo- start reading this book and automatically think that Susan Choi is trying to fuck with me unless I had like someone had told me, right? Like why would I go into anything assuming that I'm being fucked with? I just think that that's like really, at least for me, that's not how I approach faith anything. I basically trust things until yeah. I'm told that it's a lie. And so I think that like, because she proved that she was like tricking us, then everything becomes on the table for me. Cause I'm like, well, I don't know. This is a whole lie. Like none of this was real. So basically what I'm saying is that Martin was a figment of our imagination. I mean, I do think that that, like what you have just described seems to me like the whole project of the book. Like once a deception is revealed, it's suddenly like, what do you trust? And then you have Karen like whispering into our ears being like, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm right. going to tell you what really happened. But we can't trust her either because she's we, got a vendetta against everybody and she's totally. shooting people in the balls. Like, right. I can't trust her. But initially she's like, I'm going to like, I'm going right. to tell. But it's hard to believe her because she's like destabilizing like the, the right. narrative that we right. trust. Right. But, right. Then, right. but then once you like come around to like maybe like trusting her, like it flips again, you right. know. And you can't so, trust this crazy person. Totally. And so I think the the book is just like constantly turning over like, what is the truth? What is the truth? Like all right. these things. And then it's revealed like another level of artifice, like more still like, Oh, all this was fake. Right. Like who are these people? Right. Like what is the truth? Um, and it's, you know, and, and to me, like the most heartbreaking part of it is that you have this young woman who's like coming to this place to like get the truth. Right. And she's trying to get the truth in a place who's like, sole function is to like, I mean, education is supposed to illuminate like the truth to you, but like no one's going to tell her anything because like that would be really bad for that. Like self-preservation wins out. And so like this young woman who's like coming to find out the truth of her life and we all know that she's not going to get any answers because like everyone, like we've heard two different accounts of how these people are like not telling right. the truth right. and not great about helping young people. Right. We've had two separate accounts of it. Right. And so you just know that she's walking into, like she's not going to find what she wants or what she needs. And like how heartbreaking that is that she's never, perhaps she's never going to find out the truth of her life. Hmm. And even if she did track down her birth mother, like still that's like, yet more deception she kind of has to like crawl through right right? like it's you know i mean to me that's like one of the most heartbreaking parts of the book is that you have a person for whom the the facts of their life is going to always be out of reach because the point like the like truth in this novel is so unstable right right i mean we haven't even talked about like i think what a lot of people talk about when they talk about this book which is like the sexual assault oh my god because i've heard people refer to this book as like the and not like the literary fiction answer to me too, mm. or like the artistic, you know, novel version of me too. And I, it was not that for me at all, but I do think that like 
the way that the sexual assault is written about, it makes it easy to kind of like not include it in a conversation like this, even though it is like such a big part of the book. It's like we we stop even really looking at that because we're just trying to figure out what the fuck is going mm-hmm. on. And I don't know. I mean, like, I don't have anything smart to say about that. But I, I after that is the only thing I knew about the book going in was that it was a literary fiction normalization of Me Too. And I kept waiting for that moment. And it was much more insidious and like part of the book in a way that it wasn't even a moment. Mm. Like it was just like part of like the culture at Kappa and like in such a gross way that it was just there. Yeah. I was going to say like, which one, you know, like there are so many, like it's, there's so many moments in this book that are, that are so cringy because it's like, Oh, that's inappropriate. Oh no. And it's not even like, some of them are aren't even like sexual. It's just like Mr. Kingsley being yeah. so inappropriate with that. Right. And it's like, oh my God, like you are an adult. These are children. Like all of the moments in which the book subtly reminds you that these are children. Right. And they're behaving in sort of adult ways. Right. And they're sort of moving around right. like adults. But there are all these ways that they that they I mean, they are literally children and the book subtly reminds you. It's like, oh, I have to ask my mom if I can go here. Or like, oh, I I, we're going to have a sleepover at mom's house. Like all of the, right. even, is it Karen's mom who's like super inappropriate? Karen's or, mom who like gets in bed with Sarah. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just like, there's so, the adults in this book behave in ways that are so like uncomfortable to see because you, they also feel so real. It's like, who's the adult here? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and it's, and to me, it's so insidious because you see how that assault, like, comes out of like you said like the culture like you see how it happened like you see exactly how she you see exactly how she ended up in that place at that moment for that to happen to her like you see it and it's like slow motion car crash which her are you talking about sarah or karen i was thinking of sarah i was thinking of sarah when you said that but also karen Karen, yeah Yeah. i mean it's because like she's the one who ends up pregnant yeah like it's like not to have like oppression olympics or anything or whatever you want to call it but it's like Sarah has it bad, but Karen, I guess, has it even worse. But like, because the way the book's set up, we are, we think of Sarah as the person. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the book kind of throws Emmanuel out there as like a kind of red herring right. in a way. Right? Oh my God, I know. I was so waiting for him to come back, which is why I've I was, forced him back. I was devastated when he didn't come back. But, it, you know, like there's a way that the book kind of uses him to sort of, it's like, okay, I was waiting for something bad to happen. And it has now happened, so I can relax. Right. And then it hits you with like that horrible party, like that weird party. Or even just like that, like that really gross, like that scene in the dark, which is like really amazing and right. powerful, but it's also like, whoa. Yeah. Um, and what's going on? And that's so early in the book. Yeah. And you're like, wait, what the fuck? Yeah. I mean, like the book does such a great job of so deeply inhabiting like the like the young people's consciousness and like what it's like to be a peer among them that you fall right in step with them. And so like they feel so worldly Mm. and wise and smart. And, and then it just, like I said, like these subtle little course corrections where you're like, Oh, you're a child. Oh no, where are we? Right. Oh my God. Right. Why aren't you at home? Oh no, this is bad. Right. Oh no, don't lie to your mom. Oh no, oh no. Oh no. Like it's, you know, all of these, the ways that the book reminds you, like, of what you're reading. Totally. Like what's going on yeah. here. Yeah. And it's right. so, and, but, and when it reminds you, you realize how 
like you feel implicated in right. it, you know, and it's so uncomfortable. It's true because you're like, oh, gross. Like that's what I've been reading about. Like yeah. you kind of forget and, and that these different like hashtag me too moments, there's so many and they're so different and layered and some are, are easily identifiable and some are less like yeah. Karen's mom getting in bed with Sarah at the end of part one, you're like, wait, what's going on? And then it just ends. And I'm like, Susan, I need to know what happened. No, totally. I mean, to for me, it was like that sort of the subtle distance between like the, the young people don't know that it's fucked up, like what's happening to right. them, but you do. Right. But you don't think about it until the book reminds you that they're 15 or 16, you know, right. like until the book is like, oh, that is a child. Right. And then you've like, been, oh, we can't drive. Or like, can't wait to get my car. Totally. And you're like, wait a second. But you've been going along with them while they've been hanging out with these like adult men right. who were there for like right. the summer. And you're like, oh, right. Right. Like, does your mom know you're dating a 40-year-old? Yeah. Like, uh... And then you were like, why was I so okay with this three right. pages ago? Right. And it's because the book has, like, slipped you so inside of their consciousness. And they don't have wisdom. So they don't right. know that this is not right. what they Right. They think sh- it's, like, dangerous in a cool way and right. not dangerous in, like, a gross... You're going to yeah. regret this later in life and no one should be taking advantage of you way. And the reader... The book just, like, strips the reader of any, like, you just have no defenses until you're like, whoa, oh, my God. And there are so many moments before all, before it gets really bad, there are all these moments where it kind of, like, like a car swerving on a road, you're kind of like, oh, wait, we're in a car with, like, three adult men and two high school girls. Oh, no, this is really bad. But then the book will sort of, nothing really bad happens. So you're like, okay, it's fine. Right. And then there'll be another moment right. where you're like, oh, we're at a party. These are like grown men. What's going right. on? But then like nothing bad will happen. And the book sort of trains you in this way to just like acclimate to like, okay, okay. Like it's it's like not appropriate, but I guess like nothing bad is going to happen. Right. And then when it does happen, you're, you're like, oh my God. Right. Why, the, why, why did I, we stop this? Why was I so... Like, okay. Like, how did I, Hmm. how did my guard get dropped in this way? Am Hmm. I a bad, awful person? And I think the book, I think the book simulates what it's like to kind of exist in a culture that creates an air of permission around violating people's bodies, you know? Right. Like, it's, ugh, it's so smart and it's so insidious. Yeah. Yeah. She does a really good job of not making it the obvious Mm -hmm. Me Too book. Yeah. Because you don't need that. No. Like I I think the thing about like the whole me too thing is that when it's really obvious everyone's on board. It's when it's weird and not obvious and there's gray and it's like I think that is what this book does. Is it's like where are, who are we when it's not like Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. You know like how do we how do we come down on you know it's like oh he's only 24 and she's only 16 like and the age of consent in England is different and we can justify this mm-hmm. and it's not gross but it's fucking gross. Yeah. To me, you know, like the story of Harvey Weinstein is tragic and horrific. But like ultimately like that is like the story of a monster and the right. monster is so identifiable. Right. And so like to me like that is like I'm like yeah, okay, I get that. But to me what's like an interesting story is a story about the ways in which we as a culture have created this permission, you know, to me, the real monster in the room is not Harvey Weinstein exactly so much as like the culture that allowed him to hide in plain sight for so long. Like, what is that like? What's that about? Who are all of, who, like, we're all kind of these 
passive actors in a mm. culture that allows these things to proliferate. Right. And I think that's what the this, book does. Yeah, exactly. It's such a smart novel about, yes, like me too, but not about the obvious monsters. It's about how we each sort of create an air of permission around this stuff. And it comes for us each in our, in its own way. Um, and to me, like, that's what makes it like a really interesting piece of art. You know, mm. like, is it, is it like a super even reading experience? Like, no. Like technically it's like very strange. Like it's a strange mm-hmm, book. Mm-hmm. Like it's a weird book. It's a weird book. But I think it asks such important questions in such interesting ways. And, yeah. it, and you just like never see it coming. You're just like, yeah. oh my God. Because it's like, you know, I just, I don't know. I keep going back to like, I don't want to read the straightforward version of this book. Mm-hmm. It's like too icky. And it, then it just becomes about like molesting kids kind of, you yeah. know, I'm like, and like, that's not, that's not interesting. That is gross and devastating and like objectively wrong. And yeah. this book is like much more subjective because of the way that she disorients us and because of the way that she kind of like chops it up and, and, and puts us in their brains. Like she makes, she implicates us. She, she brings us like to the playing field in a way where we can't just be judgy about what's going mm-hmm. on, which I think is really good. Yeah. She disarms us yeah. and forces us to be implicated in yeah. these systems in a way like we all are right. in actual life. Exactly. Um, and, you know, like when I'm sitting down at the page as a writer, like I'm always interested in writing like morally complicated, mm-hmm. like messy, nuanced takes on things mm-hmm. because as a reader, that's what I love. Like I right. want, I want the mess. I want the complication. Right. Um, this is a total twist, but it's really about your book, but I'm going to pretend like it's about this book. In this book, she has these characters who have these names that are like Sarah and David and Karen. And in your book, you have characters that have names like Wallace and Miller and a word that I actually don't know how to pronounce. I was at Ingva. That's the one. <laughs> I did turn to my husband and say, have you ever heard of a name that is spelled? And <laughs> this out and he's like no when you fictionalize things that happen in and around your life how do you decide how to name people um yeah that's a great question i mean yeah i mean i i just pick names the way that i always do i always try to pick names that are like interesting to me um and that like feel right for those characters right but like sometimes if you're like trying to be more meta you can kind of like like in trust exercise, like what is it, Mister Lord and yeah. Kingsley, you know? Yeah. But, um, and so I, I like sometimes being meta and playing around, but right. I ultimately, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's like there are drafts of real life that had like different names in different right. places, and I was just like, mm, this is too right. close to the bone. Right. Or it's I've like got, <laughs> I've got like a Jim and Tim. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I've got to take this like seven steps, like further down the line just to like make sure that I've actually like fictionalized. Right. Do you have people from your life come to you and say like, is this me? No. And I, I was so afraid that that would be the case um, because I was once a black gay man in a cohort of scientists in Madison. Um, But my cohort mates, some of them have read the book and they've just been so supportive and so mm-hmm. lovely and nobody's like, I recognize myself. Um, right. And, and 
I hope that they wouldn't because right. like no, it's not them. It's not a one to one in any way. I right. was drawing on things that I was familiar with and things that I found interesting, but ultimately it's been combined and recombined with so many different things right, that right, like right. it's scarcely it's barely that. It's barely even that right. anymore. Yeah. Because you're like more of a nuanced and better writer than Sarah, let's just say. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah, no offense, but you kind of suck. She was not great. <laughs> okay. The last thing we talk about usually is the title and the cover. So the title of this book is book is Trust Exercise. And um, the cover is kind of like a reddish pink. I don't know. It depends mm-hmm. on your eyesight, I guess. And then these green um, folding chairs all over. They're kind of like pretty green color. And then it has like a cream trust exercise. And it's kind of hidden in, in front and behind of the chairs. What do we think of these cover and title? Um. I'm so angry about the title because it is so good and mm-hmm. I wish I could steal it for myself. <laughs> it's like so, so good. I mean, it, it does, it does all the things a great title does. It like suggests the story on a sort of surface level. Right. It also suggests the story on a more meta level. Right. It literalizes the metaphor at the heart of the book. Yeah. Um, it just, oh, it, it works really, really well. It does. And the cover, I think, also is like it also literalizes the metaphor at the heart of the book like the chairs they sit on to do the thing and there's so many of them and they're in different directions and they're arrayed in all these like different ways and it's kind of disorienting and mysterious and it's like not even what it it doesn't necessarily look like what it is yeah it took me a while to realize they were chairs yeah same from when i first saw it and so it's i mean it just to me, it works. Like it yeah. just is so, and like the font is kind of, you know, it's kind of like snappy and youthful. Like it mm-hmm. looks like a flyer that you'd mm-hmm. find taped to a, like a pen board somewhere, right? Like yeah. it looks kind of like a flyer. So I don't know. I, I think it really, it's really strong. I think so too. I think it's a really good package, I'd say. They thought it through for yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, it feels really smart. I also like that the green chair is obscuring some of the writing and then mm. some of it not like that some of the letters are wrapped around or through I think that's kind of cool like you can't see everything from yeah. the front but you can you think you can figure it out um, and it is like very literal and then also metaphorical is that right metaphorical Meta- figurative figurative that's right sure <laughs> hashtag word choice um, but that that those things are working together in different ways. And then also, of course, that she's like asking us to trust her. Mm-hmm. That's like a, this is a trust exercise <laughs> audience with my book. Um, but it, it, it is, it all comes together really nicely. And the inside of the book, like your book is not at all the same. Like the actual book is not all the same as the jacket, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, yeah. it's so great. Yeah, it's really good. Um, is there anything else that we need to talk about about this book before we get out of here? Um, no, I mean, it's just, I guess like we could talk, I mean, one thing is yeah. like we've talked a lot of like deep stuff. Like it's a deep, great yeah. book, but it's also so much fun. It's a fun read. <laughs> it's so, it's so much fun. fun. Yeah. You're right. That is worth saying at the end for those of you who made like it, it this far. <laughs> and like it wears its dark themes like in such a smart, swift way. Yeah. And it's not baggy. It's just, it's so much fun. Well, and the whole first part, I kept being like, this is like kind of a thriller. Like it's kind yeah. of thrillery. Like you don't really know where it's going. You know something bad is happening, but you really, it's like anything could jump. It's like a haunted house. Like anything could jump out at you at any time, which makes it feel kind of light and fun. Um, and I really like that. Yeah, it's so pacey. Like you're just, yeah. I just kept turning pages. I'm like, ooh, I want to know more. I, yeah, yes, tell totally. me, tell me everything. Yeah. Ugh. 
It's good. I understand why I won the National Book Award. Totally. Now. Though I was not happy when I hadn't read all the books because I had one that I really liked. But this is good. It's a good book. I, yeah, when I, I sort of make my list every year of the long list. And yeah. I had something like five out of the, the total long list. I had one this year for fiction. <laughs> And one for nonfiction. Oh, I see. I nailed it. I could never do nonfiction. Oh. But sort of winnowing it down to the shortlist, I was like, I, I think trust exercise should, like, to me, it was like. Really? To me, it was like the one book that I, I was like, if this one wins, I will be happy, which means that, of course, it will not win. Right. But then it did. And I was like, so excited. I know. I mean, you said last week that um, books and literary, the literary world is kind of like your fantasy football. Mm-hmm. And I am actually into football. So that's not true for me. But I do love the National Book Award. And I love like how dramatic it is with like the longest. And then we announced the shortest and yeah. everyone's there. And it's like a real, it's like the Academy Awards and it's really fun. And it's fun to be like on book Twitter or book Instagram and like being all judgy and people being like, I read all the books and this is the one that should win. And like, I just, ugh, I, I love, love it. it. I, it's one of those moments that like really unifies book Twitter. Cause yeah. like, it's just like, it's so much fun. And I also, I do it for like also the pen awards. I oh. love those. Those, oh my God, it's so juicy. It's Those always- ones are so Soonish. Soonish, they're yeah. not. Yeah, they're at the beginning of the year, and the Pulitzer's coming up in April. Can't, Can't wait. wait. <laughs> I know, but they need to do it like where they tell me what my options are, so yeah. I can be like, this one should win. Because when it comes out, I'm like, well, okay. I felt so proud of myself last year. I was like, these three books, these are going to be the two finalists, and like this one's going to win. And you got it right. Well, I got two of the three right. I can't even remember what one the Richard Pulitzer. Powers, the Oprah oh, story. Did you get that? I did not see okay, that one. Coming. That was the two you didn't. I, get. I was like, it's going to be the Great Believers. It's mm. going to be there, there. Yeah. And and my pick was Jamal Brinkley's A Lucky Man. Oh, which is, interesting. Oh, I perfect. have read that. I really love that book. But it was, you know, The Great Believers, There, There, and The Overstory. Yeah. So I picked two out of those. That's really good. <laughs> I could never even attempt to do the fiction for the Pulitzer. This year, I don't, I have no idea. This year, like the one for this year, the books that came out, right. I mean, like, who knows? I mean, my pick for the National Book Award was Colts and Whiteheads, Nickel Boys, because I oh. freaking loved that book. So I'm hoping that it wins the Pulitzer because I just love it. I thought Double it was so Pulitzer. good. Double Pulitzer. Yeah. I mean, rare. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be trust exercise. You do? I think, yeah, I think it's going to be trust exercise. And I think Nickel Boys is going to be one of the finalists. Okay. I'll take it. But it... I would be really happy if it won. <laughs> like I the Nickel like Boys. I the Pulitzer just like pulls shit out of thin air. Like less? Like what? Oh, that book was, you know. That was uh, a surprise. It was a total surprise. My pick for that year was The Idiot. I was like, mm. I love The Idiot. Mm. It was so much fun. Um, but as I said, I loved campus novels. And so when less one, I was like, oh, what is this? But then I read it. So delightful. It's lovely. We did it on the show. I liked it fine. It's a lovely book. Yeah, it's cute. Whatever. I, I was still startled that it won the Pulitzer. Yeah. But the love- whole time reading it, I was like, this one, the po- like, I don't get it. But it was cute. Like, I liked yeah. it. But it didn't stick out. I mean, that's the fun thing about book awards is like, there's, you've no, you've no clue. Yeah. It's not even like acting awards where you're kind of like, okay, they owe it to Brad Pitt. Yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like it's, that. It's like the studio spent a lot of money to support yeah. this person's candidacy for right, this award. Right. But with, yeah, with the Pulitzer, it's just like, I get, okay, it's April. It's some random day in April. I right. guess we're going to just like dump it's these like out. It's like tax day. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like surprise. Happy April 13th or something. Yeah. Like, I wonder, I do wonder who will win, but I, 
I like 2019 was just like such a weird fiction year. I think yeah. 2020 is a weirder fiction year. Yeah. Because uh, everything's coming out. The more I read, the less I have a sense, mm. I think. Because I don't, I don't ever agree with any. I never, I never can pick. How, like I, I would pick 10 books. I was like, these are going to be the longest for nonfiction. One. <laughs> like really? And I read a ton of nonfiction. So I was very disappointed in myself. And I think, Next year, I'm not going to announce what I think it's going to be because I failed so bad this See, year. See, I really like it. I, I post like my it. list. Okay. Yeah. I think I think I had like five or six out of the ten. That's good. I mean, I don't read nearly enough current fiction to do it. I mean, I also hadn't read all – I mean, you can kind of tell. Yeah. Like you could – sometimes it's easy to – some years, it's easier to tell than right. other years. Yeah. Last year, I my fiction – I mean, it was also just like a weird year. Yeah, I still haven't read anything from their long list, really, from last mm. year. I mean, now this, check. Yeah, have you, I guess you haven't read Fleischman is in Trouble. No. You know, like that book, it's it's kind of like, it's kind of like less in that it's kind of like a, like a fun, delightful read, but it's about right. this like Jewish divorcing couple right, right, in New right. York City. And it's, she's such a charismatic writer that I was just like, ah, yes, just hmm. turn in the pages. Right. I've heard people loved it. I don't know if I loved it. I think okay. that it's got some real craft. I had some questions okay. on the level of craft, okay. but she's such a charismatic writer that you yeah. just like, like it was like, I thought it was like a fine book. Interesting. If you've got spare time, it's I mean, one, to, one to think about. I might, I might do it. <laughs> My list, like I'm sure your list, it's like a billion books. It's basically every book. Every book. And like every day there's more that come and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to read this. It's every Tuesday. There are more <laughs> books that publish and I go to the, bookstore in Iowa City and I go and I visit them and I'm like, oh, the, it's like looking at the new puppies, you know? Right, it's like, right, oh, right, what right. new ones are on the table? And yeah, and there's too many. There are too many, is the short answer. Well, so I heard, this is like totally off topic, but whatever, before we go, I heard that this year in the fall they're publishing less books because of the election. Have you heard this? Yes. Is this true? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I haven't seen the numbers. And so like, perhaps it's just one of those things that feels true, but... There are so many books pubbing in the spring and in the early summer. And there are fewer books coming out. Normally, like August, September is like right. a big year, big month, less so this year. But there are some heavy hitters coming out in the fall, including well, Marilyn Robinson. And the Yah uh, Jesse's coming yes. out in the fall. Is that in the fall? I, I thought that was October. in the summer. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Because the Brit Bennett is in the, in summer. the summer. That's right. Brit Bennett, Yah Jesse, round two. Uh, I can't wait. Yeah. It's going to be the mother's home going all over again. I have to say, again. I was team the mothers. I love the mothers. I liked home going. Yeah. I know unpopular opinion alert. Everybody loves home going. But you know, I mean, they're not in competition. No. We can have both of these books. No. It felt, I mean, I will say that like that was before I sort of wrote my novel and before I like moved to be a writer. And it just felt like such a special time that these two books by black right. women, one got great advances and right. were just taken over the world. Like it yeah. just felt so special yeah. and it was delightful to see. Yeah. I read Homegoing before this podcast and before like I became like a, mm. what I like to call a professional reader, but I read The Mothers. Oh, also before, like right as I was getting ready to launch this endeavor and I thought they were both really good, but The Mothers was like unexpectedly good for me and I feel like Homegoing was hyped already for yeah. me by like the people in my life. 
I see. Which I hate the people in my life. Stop hyping shit to yeah. me. Like, just tell me every book is trash and I should read it so that I can love everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Brit Bennett's book is so, I mean, they're so different. Yeah, like, they're so different. Like, they're so different. But the thing that I liked about both is that they were so inventive. Like, mm. there was such a spirit of ingenuity about yeah. just like formally, they yeah. were so yeah. interesting. And I can't wait to see what they do next. Yeah. I mean, we t- are totally <laughs> off the trust exercise topic, but who fucking cares? Um, and speaking of books that are amazing that everyone should can't wait to see what they do next, Brandon's book, Real Life, it's out in the world. You have to go get it and read it. I'm not saying this because I'm not good at this, but like if it was on lists at the end of the year, I wouldn't be surprised. That's all I'll say. It'll be on the list around here either way. But um, Brandon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been delightful. Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Brandon Taylor for being our guest. Also a huge thank you to Claire McGinnis for setting up this interview. Remember our book club pick for May is The Giver by Lois Lowry. We will discuss the book on May 27th. Find everything we talked about today on this episode in the link in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 